So there they were at the cross. Mary, the group of women, the Apostle John. Their hearts were imploded. All the dreams, all the connections, all the love that they thought they'd found in at least the prophet that was going to bring Israel's redemption. They had some skewed idea about his messiahship. Blown up in their face. Their trust wounded, if not shattered. Their hopes dashed. On the Jewish third day, the women went to pay their last respects to Jesus, actually. They went to get a dead Jesus. They went to minister to a dead Jesus. The tomb was empty, and they saw angels that said Jesus was not dead but alive and risen. So they went and told the others what the angels had said. And as you know, the others began to celebrate and clap and sing and enjoy. No, they did not at all. In fact, it made no sense to them. In fact, the Greek word is often used to describe a person raving in illness and uh, in, in in sort of hallucinations. I was with someone about uh, three weeks ago who was there in the hospital and just raving about someone was kidnapping them and holding them in the mall, a family member. It's just empty. It's just madness. That's what the report sounded like to them. But Peter just got up and ran to the ground, as Peter was apt to do, probably without examining or thinking, he just did it. And when he got there, the tomb, sure enough, was empty, and the linen cloths were there. And he marveled. Now, this word can be used marveling in unbelief or marveling in belief. But in Luke, it's usually positive. So we'll just assume that he was halfway there, on his start to the way there of believing. That's where our two come in. When those that went to the tomb returned and their great spiritual vigor, they got the heck out of Dodge. They left town. I want us to take some time today with the time we have to look at Jesus' restoration of these two on the road to Emmaus. Do you know that most of Easter season in the discipleship of knowing and following Jesus as focused by the liturgical year, the Christian year, that much of what Jesus did this season focuses on Jesus spent almost all of his 40-ish days restoring those closest to him, their blown-out hearts, their shattered faith, their distorted theology and hermeneutics, all that they were was in a bad place. And the risen Son of God spent his focus incarnate in his risen flesh on those closest to him. I hope you will experience this sermon. The risen Christ, as we walk through this scripture together, restoring the places that may be blown out in you, certainly as a community, you all have suffered a great loss. In many ways, especially those that knew Aaron well and care deeply about the young women who are or are still hospitalized as far as I know. In my prayers, I've been praying as though they are. You're stricken with grief. Life is blown up in your face. 
But even as a community, often if we not even if we're if we're not even close to the person, it triggers griefs and disillusionments and despairs and doubts. My prayer is this morning that you will allow Jesus. As we look at the road to Emmaus, and we won't get to see much of it, that he'll start to restore your heart. Could we pray a minute? Lord, just do that right now. I pray by your risen presence. Penetrate our minds, our hearts, our past, our present, our, our anticipation of the future. Lord, just come now and impart yourself to us through your word, through your body, through worship, by the Holy Spirit, in the preached word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, since I'm not going to near get to uh, my sort of gathering up of how Jesus restored these disciples from a blown-out heart to an ignited, burning heart, from a kind of skewed theology and hermeneutic to a Jesus-centered, Jesus-lens uh, of interpretation, I'm just going to go through right at the beginning the five R's. I've gathered it that way for this sermon. I use all kinds of different sort of uh, motifs to describe this restoration ministry of Jesus. The first R is he relationally, and I'm going to throw in bodily, showed up, became present. Secondly, he relieved. It relieved in the sense of they had something on their existential and emotional and spiritual and, and maybe even physical stomach and mind and heart that needed to be relieved and released. He relived with them. He bore their sorrows and their griefs. Then he rescued them. With a lovingly firm intervention, we'd call it prevenient grace in our tradition. Then he reframed their view of God and Scripture and the Messiah and helped them get oriented from God's point of view as to where they were in the mission of God and the life of God. And lastly, he reignited their heart. We may get to the first two. So hold on. Well, our two left town. Who were they? Well, we know Cleopas, and the other is no name given. So we'll just call him NNG, or her for that matter. I, like scholars, of course, are, are greatly differing on, on who Cleopas was and who this no name might have been. Some could conjecture that uh, the, uh, Cleopas here might be the same person that was the wife of Clopas in John, so maybe it was a husband and wife. I like to think of it that way. But I want to invite you to think of it this way. The NNG person, that's you. That's me. Probably we're not going to go down in the annuals of history that in the early 2000s, Michael Lindsay impacted the world and the church. Probably most of us will just be NNGs. So would you show up on the road there? Where were they going? Emmaus, it might have been an hour away and an hour back, but probably seven, seven miles there, seven miles back. But this much we know. There was something going on in the two that makes it very difficult to understand why they left. 
I mean, they just heard from women, we saw angels, Jesus is alive, folks ran to the grave, yes, he's not there, come back and say, we went, grave cloth, he's not there, and in their spiritual vigor, their hunger for God, they got up and left. At worst, they were following this impulse. We're not going there again. We're not going to believe that kind of stuff. We're done with this. We're done with getting our hopes up. We're done with a God who seems to do nothing but let us down. And we find ourselves often with suffering and pain and rejection. I was doing a funeral a few weeks back and it was a complicated funeral and the family was there and one of the family members was intoxicated to the point there was no inhibitions. And I'm talking about this person being raised from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus being imparted to this person. And the person said very loud, not quietly, not under their breath, that's bull crap. But he didn't say bull crap. Now let me say something. The much maligned Wilmore community that we are always kind of framed as a religious, nigh-pharisaical community, nobody in that church had any other impulse but to understand where that person was coming from. Their hearts went out. Their arms and minds and hearts went open to that young person. But that's off the subject. But it's in the direction of his proclamation that perhaps Clopas and NNG left town. At the very least, they might have had livestock. I'm going to say it's their home in Emmaus or something they needed to all of a sudden do that was more important than the fact that Jesus may be alive. I'd call that disordered and skewed priorities. And then we have in verse 15 that wonderful, that wonderful thing that Jesus did. Jesus himself showed up. That's the first thing that Jesus, the risen Christ, in the Holy Spirit, here right now, will always do for you where your heart is blown out. Your understanding, you don't even have a category for where God is and what he's doing. I was just with someone whose family had just completely blown up over the last few months. And it, they were living their worst nightmares. And a person was saying, I'm just mad. I don't have any, I don't have any categories for God's sovereignty and, and human free will. And I just, none of this makes sense to me. Jesus is a specialist at becoming present right at that place. And that's what he did. He showed up. Now, I would have expected him to show up. I would have loved it if he'd shown up and grabbed their face. I won't do this to Mrs. Olson or Miss Olson uh, because it would be crazy. But I wish they just grabbed their face and just said, it's me. I love the humor of shock. I would love to have seen them. <laughs> but, you know, that might have inflicted more trauma. But it's certainly... Now, I want you to know he kind of appeared to Mary Magdalene in something kind of similar to that. So don't say God never do anything like that. In fact, I've heard people say, oh, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman or gentle person. Well, I believe that, but read Scripture. 
But Jesus didn't do that. I would at least like to see freaking signs and wonders for Jesus to show up and they just at least fall back like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, I am he. Or maybe just slain and they wake up from being slain in the spirit and he's, Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah. God Almighty and the person of his Son in risen human flesh, the salvation of all of history, showed up and started walking the wrong way. These people were in bad shape. He didn't try to fix them. He didn't say a word to them. Not yet. He just started walking with them in their pain, in their disillusionment. What was Jesus doing? I believe this is what Jesus does always in his restorative process. Back when I was in seminary, it was, you know, logs, and uh, we walked and rode horses back in those days. Um, there was a famous psychiatrist, New York psychiatrist, that had come to faith. I didn't read in his books nor hear him say this, so I heard him speak. He might even have come to the seminary during those days. I'm not sure. But I heard that this is how he came to faith. He was with a person who, a young woman, a beautiful woman, who had had a horrible stroke. And one side of her face was just horribly drooping. And why he was there as a psychiatrist, she was just undone with panic and terror and horror of what her young husband was going to reflect on his face the minute he walks in that room and sees her for the first time. So this psychiatrist is standing in the room and this young husband walks in with nothing but delight and riveted love focused on his wife. And he bent down to kiss her and he turned his mouth as best he could on that side and crooked it down and kissed her on the lips. And that agnostic, maybe atheist psychiatrist came to Jesus in the presence of such love. Like C.S. Lewis said he was brought into faith by reading George MacDonald asleep. That's where Jesus' restoration starts, men and women, and it's here right now for you. He moves into your life where you are. And gives you the kiss of unconditional grace. Covenantal faithfulness that never fails or pulls its hand back. Agape that goes into your suffering and bears your grief and your pains and your horror. And becomes present in your nightmares. And begins before you know it, way before you recognize him to restore your soul. And then Jesus did something curious. He is only the word that spoke into being when there was nothing, everything. I, I, I'm at seminary. I can use a uh, theological word. Ex nilo, or however you say it. I, I'm sure 
that some slur the Latin the way I said it's the way the Latins would say it, of course. It being a living language and all. The one who can speak the word of God, and as it said in the Old Testament, he spoke his word, and there was healing issued forth. He didn't lightning strike them with a creative word, with a fixing word. Once again, he just walked along and listened and started to ask questions. And his first question was this. What is it that you two were talking about on the road as I walked up? It says that they were discussing and disputing as any good uh, uh, men of the scriptures exposed to a rabbi in the Jewish tradition would be disputing. We could do a little of that in scholarly circles. I shouldn't say we, they. Do a little bit of that in scholarly circles. And we at seminary, I, there's no town in America where you can be going to the post office and people are up there are right on the sidewalk by the post office saying, now, this is God's eschatology. I'm not sure if we really have exegeted this. I mean, you hear that all over, all over Wilmore. Well, they were torn up. They were in disequilibria, but they were trying to make sense of it. And they, they didn't have, they did, but they didn't remember they had categories. They didn't have a category for what was happening. For a dead Messiah. For the Roman government winning for what they saw as less than brilliant biblical church leadership completely betraying the people. Jesus said, what were you talking about? And it stopped them in their tracks. Have you ever asked a person a question and you touched a sore spot. You touched a wound. And all of a sudden, all of their emotions, all that they're feeling, sometimes their existential being just pulls up to their face. Happened with Barry. This was 20 years ago. I have his permission to share this story. He was a surfer guy. You would love Barry. Blonde hair. I mean, he looked like the David statue. That's a little overstated, but not by much. I mean, when you just think of, man, this person is cool and cut. That was Barry. To make it even better, he loved and was devoted to Jesus. He was his hometown, Titusville, Florida. Charismatic Baptist Church, that's almost unheard of. Peter Lord, the pastor. He was their hero, called a ministry. He was at Columbia International University where I taught. He took the campus by storm. Everyone knew and loved Barry. And he gave Jesus credit and glory. Made you love him all the more. But something had gone out in him. I thought at first it was just temporary, but something had left him. His life seemed forced. Even his joy seemed like it was a volition rather than 
out of his heart and out of his being. He was a student at the time. He, he later was in the outdoor program that I led, but I, I just had him in class. I know him that well, so I just asked him one day, Barry, what's happened? You seem angry to me. His face literally went flush with what looked like grief and anger. And he said, I can't tell you right now, but I'll tell you later. And he just rushed out of my office. Something akin to that happened to Cleopas and NNG. Maybe to you. A doubt that you hadn't been able to shake. An abandonment that you can't get over somehow. Something no matter how much food you eat or alcohol you drink or Jesus you try to shoot in your veins like an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety, you're still scared and afraid, alone. And if somebody touches it, you can see it's still alive. The risen Christ wants to come today to you just as surely as on the road to Emmaus. Would you open yourself in this moment? Somebody saying it's a sermon about over. It's close, but it's not over. Well, Cliffus said, are you the only person, the only visitor in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on around here? Now, you all get the irony of this? Now, we have to be fair. The scripture says their eyes were seized. They were covered. It was kind of a strange combination. Scholars can't seem to land on it of just kind of the hardness of their heart and holding their categories about the Messiah and God so tightly that they can't see Jesus. They're so wrought up inside and distraught they can't see Jesus. But even there seems to be in the passive tense of this verb, God at work sovereignly keeping them from seeing Jesus right at this moment. But you know, Jesus could have said, well, I was kind of there. Kind of in the middle of it all. Surely he could have used this to seize the opportunity to get down to the heart of the matter. I have a lot of really good prophet friends and every pastor needs good prophet friends. But if Jesus had given away to his prophet personality the way a lot of my prophet friends are, they'd say, quit all this mamby-pamby and get down to the restorative work. The way of love of the sovereign God whose name is love, the ways of power, the ways of ministry, the ways of healing and restoration are to become present, incarnate, and attentive to bear the pain and misery and confusion, the way of suffering. That's just what Jesus did. He asked another question, and I'm at the time that in four minutes I will, or five close what things what things what things 
supposedly have I missed? Why would Jesus ask those questions? I think there's at least three reasons. One is, as I've sort of hinted at before, God is not about a quick fix. He's not about being, Jesus is not about being Dr. Feel Good. And he's not against us feeling good. In fact, that's part of shalom. But he's way more interested in us developing. Well, count it all joy when you encounter trials. Because the testing of your faith brings maturity. He's way more interested in us becoming a person that's not panicked and undone and strung out and, and, uh, and uh, frantic about pain and setbacks and losses. Because in a fallen world, it's just the playing field. He wants us to learn how to bear one another's burden and don't turn away our face from the horror of it. And by the Fruit and power of the Holy Spirit bring love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control into that situation. At least Jesus knew they had something on their stomach, existential, mental, spiritual stomach that needed epicac. They had to get it off. There wasn't any room for anything but pain. It may be I have a psychologist friend who is, uh, have you noticed I have lots of psychologists and psychiatrists on my mind? (laughs) Who would often say that person was just too fragile to be healed. Just too fragile to even be spoken to. I once went to visit a woman. Her husband was afraid she was going to kill herself. She was so depressed. And you all know I am not a quiet person if you know me at all. And I went in to read some scriptures and pray for her and I got ready to read all these scriptures and I'm whispering. I've never done this before or after. I'm just whispering. God, when you pass through the fire, I am with you. When you go through the floods. And she just burst out crying and she said, how did you know, how did you know when I'm at this place, the word of God just crushes me. How did you know to whisper? My focus was on her. I didn't even say anything, but I would, I should have said, I didn't know. Jesus knew. I believe part of why Jesus was asking questions, but they were just too fragile to be intervened with just yet. And boy, did it come with Barry and with them. Barry told me that his mom and dad had a head-on collision with a drunk driver. He'd gotten a call, said that he needed to be there or he was not going to see his parents alive. He drove like a crazy person to get there. He pulled up in the parking lot. He said, my pastor and my family were in the parking lot and I knew. I walked up, they said, your dad is dead and your mother's probably not going to live. Barry fell on his knees. He said, and I cursed God. And he said, I hadn't taken it back in some part of me. I can't take it back in some part of me. The disciples poured out Jesus of Nazareth, mighty of God, just like Moses. 
We thought he was the person that was going to redeem Israel. And our leaders failed us and had him delivered over, killed and crucified. And now our women are saying they saw angels. Makes no sense to us. Saying he's alive. And some ran to the tomb, but they, 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 it was empty, but they, they didn't see him. They just didn't. They don't have a category. And it's right at that point that Jesus intervened. Lovingly, oh, obtuse, oh, blind, oh, acting as if foolish, there is no God, folks. Didn't you know? Hadn't you seen in Scripture? That the Messiah had to suffer. It's the way of agape in the world. And be raised. And we can just look down the road from there. He reframed. Wouldn't you like to be in the Bible study that Jesus had with those two? Where in all of the Old Testament, he showed them where they spoke of him. The Jesus hermeneutic that the apostles used in Luke. I mean in Acts. Was birthed there, I think. And then he reignited their heart. So what about you today? Where do you need the Lord Jesus in this Easter season? Forty days of restoration. Where do you need for him to become present? To relieve you and relive with you and bear your sorrows. And intervene from your point of view to his and reignite your heart where it's blown out. I invite you, make that a part of your discipleship. You won't be sorry. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.